It's real. It's real. You know the deal. You know the deal. Come on. Hey, it's John. <laughs> and I'm Natalie. And welcome to What's the Deal, a podcast powered by the Norfus Firm. At the Norfus Firm, we solve people problems. We have the pleasure of working with employers all around the world, solving HR and diversity, equity, inclusion issues. Mm-hmm. We get to talk about that. Uh, our favorite thing. We get to well, talk about One of data. many favorite things. I'm so excited <laughs> about it. Um, so for those who watch the podcast, those who work with us know that we always start talking. We talk about data. It's the, the first part of our conversation. Ad nauseum. At nauseum. And why, why do we do that? Because uh, we need to center ourselves and ground ourselves in something. And it's like, how can you really make decisions if you don't really know what's happening? Right. So, so that that's sort of, and, and data tells really cool stories. Um, but to get us in this mode, we have a really cool guest today, uh, Dr. Victoria Mattingly, um, who is an industrial psychologist an author of the book Inclusolytics and owns um, Mattingly Solutions. And I love your tagline. It's a data and science. They use data and science to improve the human experience at work. And I just have to drop how we got here because yeah. it's actually kind of funny. So we, we always try to give props to our head of operations, Theo Wright, because he keeps us kind of on the straight and narrow. I mean, we're very disciplined about our work, but we love, we love to frolic, as I say, because we like to create and all these other things. And so he was at a SHRM conference and it was April 17th. And we were actually here in the office and he sent the text of like, do you guys want books? Because the thing about us, every single person on this team loves to learn. Yes. We have like a million books. We could start a small library. Yeah. But Theo is like a book buyer. And so we both were like, yeah, we didn't read the books that you got us from the last Sherm conference yet. So (laughs) no books. So, but he still bought us a book, which was Inclusolytics, right? He's like, you're going to get a book. Mm -hmm. And I started reading the book pretty immediately because the title, I love the title. Of course, again, anything data we're going to be down with. Mm -hmm. And I was telling Dr. Madden Lee when we started, like, Oh my God, I thought like she tapped our phone because I felt like I was reading our conversations like when I started reading the book. So I was, oh, we have to talk to you. So thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to have you. Oh, it's my honor. And a funny like side story about the Sherm bookstore. So Inclusolytics, we decided to self-publish the book because we wanted to get it out to market as quickly as possible. And because of that, we weren't being taken seriously. So they almost didn't have the book in the store. They didn't, they hardly got any copies from us. We brought a bunch of extra copies and they kept on selling out of the book at the store because people were buying so many of it. And so I just love, like now I know who was buying it. I know who these people buying our books out out of sale. And so thank you for buying the book and reading the book and having me on here. I, I, I said earlier, I could talk about DEI and data all day. And shout out to persistence. Yeah. We talked about persistence on another episode of um, my law school immigration professor was on and his immigration clinic was a lottery. I didn't get in and I emailed him like all summer and either I was annoying or something happened or a spot opened up and he, he, he admitted me. So I think persistence is definitely the name of the game. I love that. So 
we really work from shared language. We recognize that a lot of the work we do can fall apart if people are working from different definitions of key terms. So we'd love for you to start off by just talking to us about what does it mean to be an industrial psychologist and what does data mean? So the full term is industrial organizational psychology, which we have a major branding issue in our field. No, no, no profession should take 10 syllables to pronounce. So I actually dropped the industrial part and I call myself an organizational psychologist. So an organizational psychologist is someone in it. This is where our tagline came from. Someone who uses data and science to make life better at work for humans. And so we study a lot of the same topics that you would learn about in like an MBA program, but we look at it not from a bottom line perspective, but from a humanistic perspective, right? And so how do you lead well? How do you hire well? How do you retain employees? How do you motivate people? How do you create a healthy workplace culture? Uh, but really looking at it is, is at from that uh, end goal of making life better for humans at work. So organizational psychology, it's a thing, check it out. We have a major branding issue. I'm working on it <laughs> in my field because no one knows who we are, what we do. But when I explain it, people get so excited, like, oh, we need you at our company. So I love my field. We just need to get the word out of who we are a little better. So that that's how I would define organizational psychology. And what about data? How do you define it? So data, I define as the numbers that represent variables as they exist in the world. And so data, I feel like, is the closest that we can get to some objective truths. Now, of course, data is not infallible. You know, how it's collected, how it's analyzed, how it's used. When humans get involved, we lose that objectivity sometimes, but it's pretty close to, you know, representing how things exist in the actual world. That's how I define data. Love that. Yeah. Um, it, I love that. It's the closest thing you can get to objective reality. That is that is awesome. Um, and, and a great way to look at it because a lot of times when people are dealing with these concepts in work, they're, they're just in their own, their own reality, right? And they're not really able to deal with what's actually happening in the workplace or they're in denial of it. So it's like, it's great that, that we frame it that way so that data really supports this is what's actually happening. And I think that that, that description sort of gets at what we talk about a lot of DEI work starts with self, right? The self-exploration, the ability to understand like where your reality is with it. And I think again, being able to bring it back to some objectivity mm -hmm. is so important because we're not in the business of saying that your view is better than my view and being black is better than being white. Like that's not what this is about, right? It's not about someone being better or like, as you say, not good, bad, right, wrong. So there's a quote um, in your book and I'm going to frame it up because I think it really stuck with me because um, so the approach that you recommend in Clusolytics is aligns with how we, how we do our client work, which is really starting off with an assessment, which is sort of a fancy way of saying collecting data, right? Like understanding, like, where you, where is your steady state? So there's a quote and I, that I was just like, exactly, you know, when you're trying to get people to understand like why we take this approach. So it's the thing is. Applying an intervention without knowing what problem you're trying to solve is like prescribing medicine without having diagnosed the illness. Can you talk a little bit more about just the genesis of this quote, or at least sort of the thought process behind it? Absolutely. So 
this really gets at the importance of diagnosing a problem before going out and trying to fix it. And DEI, it's a loaded concept. It's a loaded field. And even those who are a thousand percent on board with it and want to make progress with it, they have opinions on what should be done first, what the problems are. And because it is such a personal concept, you know, how, how one sees DEI and love, and I love what you said earlier, it really starts with oneself and understanding oneself when it comes to DEI. You know, we have a lot of baked in biases of what we feel like the right thing to do should be, right? And so by using data, by taking a data-driven approach, you can help eliminate some of that bias to make sure that whatever problem you end up solving for is the actual problem that's at hand. Um, one example I like to use is equity and perceptions of equity. Um, and let, let's say it's pay it's equity, right? <laughs> What's that? It's a very loaded term these days. Very loaded term. So, so pay equity, you know, like this concept that people are getting paid fairly based on their experience and not because they're in certain subgroups, right? Sometimes people think, well, because pay equity is an issue, it must be an issue here. Well, did you run a pay equity analysis? Like, do we actually have pay inequities going on in this organization? You don't know until you do that data work. And so imagine all of these resources were going into pay equity. It turns out, oh, our people are being paid equitably, but we really could have used some employee resource groups over the last year while you were working on this pay equity study. Right? So <laughs> did anyone bother assessing that beforehand before we spent all this time and energy doing a pay equity study? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's fascinating because um, we started this podcast because uh, tone from the top, right? That a lot of the work we do, we felt was made or bro broken by the leadership support or, or not support. And um, we, so we do distinctly talk to leaders and then we talk to the rest of their staff to understand if there's e like even a schism between the way leaders are looking at it and staff. And lately it's been fascinating because we've had two clients now in a row where the senior leaders are like, oh, recruiting and recruiting and recruiting. Right. And you're like, oh, recruiting. Like we got to really work on recruiting. Work on recruiting. And then we go and we do these surveys and like no one's talking about recruiting. They're talking about their own career development path. And the when we presented this to like a senior leadership team recently, you're like, wow. Right. Like they're trying to like all gun ho trying to bring in more diverse candidates. And the people that are already there are like, what about us? So I think to your point, if we had only listened to the senior leaders saying there's a recruiting problem, then you might be running after and spending a lot of time, which is very precious, on on things that are not really going to move the needle. Yeah. And another part I see is also when we what we get calls for, can you do this training or can you do that training? We're like, but is that the training? you? Need? How do you know that's the training you need? Right. Like you haven't taken the time again to the point to do the assessment, the analysis, understand what's happening in your workplace to really decide, OK, yes, we do need unconscious bias training or yes, we do need um, inclusive leadership training or whatever it is. But you don't really know that until you're just anecdotally pick, you know, pulling that out. But that might not be the first training you need. So so that what is really key here. What do you do? How do you approach the diagnosis piece? Like, for example, this this example of people wanting you to start off with the training and you're not really sure what's going on in the organization. Like, how do you sort of try to redirect clients to patients? Yeah, we do a needs assessment 
before any training engagement. And sometimes that looks like a focus group. So we did a really cool project we just wrapped up where we started with a focus group with the employee resource group leaders because we want they wanted to do a training on allyship okay great we'll do something on allyship but i'm not going to just bake in whatever allyship content i feel like putting in there that day i want to hear from the erg leaders about what they want to see from allies when it comes to engaging with either the ergs themselves or just members of these various underrepresented groups in the organization and so all the content that ended up in that training was based on what happened in that focus group. So that's one type of um, needs assessment that we do. Other times we'll just survey the entire workforce or really quick short survey of what topics would get you closer to where you need to be when it comes to DEI, this organization. And sometimes we even use their own shared language in there. So here at this company, DEI means XYZ, what would help get you closer to that XYZ ideal? And then we'll have a list of options for them and we'll leave it open-ended too, so they have that opportunity as well. So this is a big theme of the book too, but it doesn't have to be a complicated data collection, data analysis process. You can start simple, but what matters most is that, yeah, you're 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 solving for the problem at hand. You're you're making the proper diagnosis. So whatever that medicine is, that intervention is, it's it's aligned with what's going on in the organization. It doesn't have to be a complicated process to get there. So we live in a country of fast. And I'm listening to you, and even though it doesn't have to be complicated, it takes time to do a survey. It takes time to give people time to figure it out. It's not the instant thing someone was hoping you would tell them when they called you. How do you address the time piece that, that to, to get to solving the problem, it's going to take some time? We, we're pretty lucky and Mattingly. Uh, we, our clients know coming and working with us that what we lead with is our data-driven approach. And so something that an aha I've had recently is that the data part is still part of the intervention. So an example for you, we're working with the Pittsburgh Brewers Guild right now, and we're writing a code of conduct for them. So pretty, pretty straightforward, you know, uh, engagement. But because we're a data-driven company, we started with a full survey, and it's it, a brief survey. But when I say full, I mean we're surveying every brewery in Pittsburgh who's a part of this guild. So there's 40 plus breweries and you know 10 plus employees at each brewery, you know, 400 some people. And when the, the week the survey went out, they had a festival going on and someone made a comment of, well, wouldn't it have been great if the code of conduct was done by the time this festival happened? So the speed thing that you're getting at. And I go, yeah, that would that would have been ideal in a perfect world. But think about there's 400 people this week during the week of this festival who are getting this survey either on their phone or through email or through a flyer they saw in the brewery where they're being asked about, you know, do they feel safe and what do inappropriate behaviors look like? And do you know what to do whenever someone behaves inappropriately, right? And that's getting people thinking of, oh, do I know what to do whenever I see inappropriate behaviors or, <laughs> Have I been the perpetrator of these behaviors? And these might be questions that, that people in this industry have never asked themselves before. And so the sheer act of doing the survey is part of the intervention. 
and they will eventually get their code of conduct and we're going to do training and we're going to do the whole, you know, the kit and caboodle. But, you know, the, the even asking yourself these questions and filling out a survey is part of the culture change work because the organization is saying, hey, we care about this stuff now and this is something we're taking seriously and we want and we want to hear your input on it. Right. And that's that's part of the, the change process. I love that you that you approach it as like this. Even this is bringing up the mindfulness for people that they need. OK, am I doing this the right way or a way that isn't detrimental to the, whatever business I'm in? And so, like speaking of behavior change and change management, but specifically behavior change, how do you. I mean, I feel like the data could be really, really integral to that too. But how do you see people taking that? Like, this is what you see on paper. This is the numbers. These are the black and white, the words. How do you then translate that into behavior change? Because a lot of what we see in DEI is people need to change how they interact, the behaviors they engage in with their peers, colleagues, et cetera, in order to really create the environments that they want. So how can you bridge that gap with data? People want to see scores increase, right? So they want to see, this is my score this year, my inclusion score this year, and I want our company to have that 10%, 20%, whatever that that change is next year. So it, it's feeding into this, we're used to understanding what grades are and what you know good numbers, bad numbers are. So it's kind of leaning into that. But I love this question because I wanted to take it a little, a couple steps back and getting into how we define inclusion and we define inclusion as a behavioral construct specifically the behaviors that result in others feeling valued respected seen and heard so inclusion is the behavior it's, it's what you do and belonging is the outcome it's how you feel and so we measure inclusive behaviors and we measure them on a frequency scale as well so we don't say i believe i see these behaviors it's how often do you see them do i see them always do i see them sometimes do i see them never and by measuring inclusion as a behavior then you're able to identify which behaviors are we lacking the most and so you can focus your efforts on increasing the frequency of those behaviors Similarly, what behaviors are you already doing really, really well? And how can you amplify that? And how can you build upon the success of, you know, maybe it's inclusive leadership or maybe it's inclusive language or maybe it's just how people are treating each other with dignity and respect. All right, we're doing this really well. How can we make sure we're doing it well to everyone and making sure we're replicating across the organization or having role models or we're featuring stories, you know, because even though I know people sometimes put the data and then the storytelling as as a counter to each other, but I think telling stories using data can be really, really powerful. And to be able to say we are really crushing these inclusive behaviors, but these ones we're lacking. And so we're going to focus the next year on developing and training our workforce to be better at these inclusive behaviors. That way you're able to build that behavior change that you're asking about within the measurement and intervention process in and of itself. You're not you're not taking all these different kind of steps of, okay, there's data, and then we learn, we make sense of it, and then we do something else, then we hope that eventually impacts the data. No, it should all be very aligned from the get-go. Wow. There's a lot of layers. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that really resonates with what you said is this idea of what are you doing well? Mm -hmm. We really work on identifying that because I think a lot of times people think consultants come in and we're just going to tell you it's all doom and gloom 
because then we keep getting more contracts. And it's like, from our standpoint is we're not here to have you start from scratch, right? Like these are typically very successful businesses that have found their way to, to the place of needing help it, it, like successfully. So it, it is sort of like, how do we build on the infrastructure that exists? Like the good, the, the parts of it that are working well. So I think that's really important in terms of helping encourage people with the behavior change. Mm-hmm. I also think in listening to, to what you're talking about, it is the, the rigor of continuously surveying, right? Like it is not a one time we're gonna do a survey and we're gonna come up with this really pretty plan and that's it. And we're going to walk away from it and just let it do its thing. As I think we can all recognize, even if you're not a DEI professional, if you're on social media, you can see that these trends change rapidly. And using your baseline scores, like in your first survey, helps you to understand, are you improving? Um, and it also helps you pivot. Um, and so do you mind talking a little bit about just thinking about pivot and the iterative nature of this work that we do? Yeah. And when there are like opportunities for that pivot, you know, and using data to drive like, oh, we're going to put our efforts here and not there. um, I think it gets back to a previous question you had about being a little slower and being a little bit more intentional about it. You know, and I'm I'm a self-proclaimed change agent. I am one of the least patient people you will ever meet, but I've had to learn how to be patient in this work because culture change, behavior change, this stuff takes time. And so we need to give ourselves that time to be able to pause. And I, and, you know, instead of doing an annual survey, maybe you're doing a quarterly survey and you're seeing, and you're, and you're focusing on one or two very specific behaviors. So you're going to want to assess those over time, especially when we have, um, you know, say there's a big training or there's a new policy that rolls out or something that, you know, would allow, lend you to believe that, you should see a change on the adoption of that behavior, or maybe there's something that happened that, that we're worried about certain groups feeling like they belong less. And so I think it's building into your strategy, into your plan of these opportunities to be able to make those pivots as you see the data change, but also what's the North Star? You know, and I think you really do need both. We talk about this briefly in the book with this concept called targeted universalism. And that really is our approach to DEI, that there's targeted approaches that, you know, that's what equity is. Certain groups need certain things that other groups don't need right now, right? And so we need to be targeted, you know, I think about the ERGs or the different, you know, awareness campaigns or um, different time points in life, thinking about parenthood, right? There's certain accommodations and needs that parents have that, that those who aren't parents don't have, right? And so what are these targeted approaches we need, but also at the same time, what's the universal approach? Right. What what does inclusion mean? What are we trying to accomplish with DEI? What does an inclusive leader look like? What does allyship mean? Right. What are these concepts that apply to everyone that can be our North Store for driving DEI forward? And so I think the pivots lie in the targeted pieces, whereas having that really strong North Star, which once again needs to be rooted in data to be that guiding force, knowing that this work just does take time and we need to allow the, the, have trust in that process that if we follow the North Star that we're gonna get closer in every intervention that we adopt. Third episode where trust came up. Yeah, I mean, you can't do this work without it. 
you honestly can't do DEI work without trust. It hinges on it. If I'm the trust in the data, like, am I collecting the right information? Do I have the right, you know, right access to it? Trust in the people who you work with, trust in the people who work with the data. Like <laughs> nothing works unless there's actual trust in, in the people and the processes. In other words, you know, yeah. it, trust is huge. And I think that just as we, gosh, uh, obviously we could talk, talk about data all day, but uh, we're at that point, <laughs> but I, so quickly. it happens so fast as, as we, as we think about that though, in terms of like trust being the underpinning of all of this, I think it leaves like though we can leave at least with one point to leaders mm -hmm. and folks who lead DEI work that keep trust in your forefront, right? Making sure that like you're working continuously to build and maintain trust. We talk about it all the time as a practice. So it's not like I have one conversation with you and you trust me implicitly and forever and always, right? We have to continue to show up. So, you know, that also I think helps with the time piece because, um, you know, even though people I think tend to trust that, hey, this is gonna be great and you're doing something, they just wanna see results. Right. And it's like when you, you trust, again, trust the process to, to what Dr. Madeline just said, it helps a lot. So as we recap here in terms of like what, what sort of the shining lights here around data, I think first and foremost, to borrow from Inclusalytics, you can't solve a problem without diagnosing it, right? You certainly would not want to walk into a doctor's office and they just hand you a prescription without walking through what your symptoms are. That would be really scary, frankly. Um, so love the framing there. Um, I think the second piece of what we heard today is that, you know, it's not a one-time thing. You don't collect data once. We talk about this a lot of you know, pause and reflect, <laughs> like are things working the way you want them to, to, to be and your data is going to help inform that. Um, and then lastly, listen, data is, gets us the closest to objectivity as possible, mm -hmm. you know? And I think one of the things that we think about a lot with that is it's going to be uncomfortable and you might hear things you're not expecting because you came in thinking it was something that it may not be. And again, that keeping open that curiosity and that willingness to, to, to be uncomfortable because that's how we achieve change. That's it. Dr. Mattingly, we can't thank you enough for spending time with us today. And for those watching and listening, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye. Here it is. Here it is.